So this morning we're going to be looking at. We'll be looking at chapters 2, verses 1 to 7. Just a bit of context about the book, as well as the chapter of your book to read. The book of Revelation is thought to be written around the time of either the, uh, the end of the reign of Nero, between 54 to 68 AD, or within the reign of Domitian, between 81 and 96 AD. The latter is more popular view among contemporaries, uh, but we're not going to get into that debate at this time. It was addressed to the seven churches that I just mentioned. Um, these were located in Asia Minor, which is now Western Turkey, um, modernly spoken of. And although the book of Revelation is usually often regularly associated with conspiracy theories and um, numerology and numbers and the cryptology and, and all the what I know many people think is the deep stuff. Um, this book was written, written as an encouragement to believers um, in the midst of suffering. And not just in the midst of suffering, but being told that suffering is also to come. So there is an eschatological future aspect to it. And that is undeniable. But the point is that for them who are hearing it under the word of the letter from John, this was an encouragement to be faithful in spite of the suffering that they are presently going through. This was to remind them of the victory that they have in the Lamb of God. Not something that is, is a possibility. Something that they themselves have to be involved in in order for the success to be had. The victory was already the Lamb's. And they were to be encouraged that in spite of their present suffering, they will be vindicated. And to we today need this encouragement, we need to be encouraged that in spite of the present issues that we are presented with in this modern secularized society, there is a victory that has already been won. Within this context, um, in chapter 2, we see that in chapters 1, 19, he spoke about writing about things that were now, that are happening now, and things that are to come. I believe that obviously what is being addressed right now are things that are. He's <laughs> speaking to specific churches at that present time and blessing and rebuking them depending on where they sit before it. We see the seven lampstands, we see the one who walks in the midst of them, which is important for later on, the lamb, the son of man as it were. And the first church that was being addressed that this letter was written to was Ephesus. Now, we're going to look at two broad principles or two broad themes today that have a couple of sub-points within them. The first is that knowing truth is a good thing. Having truth is a good thing. It's even a loving thing, by the way. But also there is a deeper one, there is something more, which is the second point. There is, there is a different aspect or a deeper, more fundamental aspect of love outside of understanding and knowing and holding to and being motivated by truth, which I will iterate multiple times is a good and loving thing. It is not to be thought of as just a dry academic process. It is a good thing to love God and to love His Word. To love truth, rather. So the first point. We see here um, in chapter 1 that these Ephesian, Ephesians, these, these Christians at Ephesus were people who had strong convictions, who loved the truth of God. They understood the necessity to 
know and understand the word, to have their minds being clear to understand what truth is and where truth came from. They were clear thinkers. Their worldview was shaped biblically. It wasn't shaped by the surrounding society which was pagan in nature. And this was commendable. For us in this time, we need to understand as well that we too need to have a biblical worldview. We need for everything that comes within our mind's eyes to be filtered through the lens of the scriptures. We have so many competing isms and schisms, pluralism, relativism, postmodernism, all the different isms and schisms that we are being bombarded with, whether it be explicitly within the universities or whether it just be the normal, general atmosphere within the world that we exist in. There's always some competing ideology or framework or ground of thinking that is competing with the biblical worldview. And unless we are clear in our understanding of how Christians are to think about the nature of man, a biblical anthropology, not a secular one that thinks that human beings are you know, relatively good people but just do bad things, we understand that men's wills are bound by sin. So this makes it so much clearer for us to understand why things happen and, and, and how they're happening because we see the world as it is. If something does not comport with the scriptures, if something does not um, conform to how the scriptures said they should be, they ought to be, we understand to be sin. And this was something that the Ephesian church had in abundance. And this is a lovely thing. And this is something that we should strive for. We affirm the inerrancy and infallibility of scripture, not only that, but the sufficiency of scripture. The motivations that are had or that we should have, again, should always be biblically based. And I want to point at this point that they were commended multiple times, as we will see, I'll, I'll look at the scriptures again, but if you can remember, they were commended for their endurance, they were commended for their hatred of sin that we're going to get to later on. And if we were to think that the rebuke that is coming later on is to say that everything that they were doing had no love in it, I think we'd be thinking incorrectly. Um, the Bible says that if you do something without love, is it something about something and simple. Um, it, it means nothing to God. It would be nothing for the Son of Man to commend in them if knowing truth, holding to truth, and being convicted and, and, and moved in action by truth was not something loving in and of itself. So I just want to dismiss that misconception before we move forward that this is not a, a, a dichotomy or a, a showing some opposite way of thinking that there are the people who love truth and then the group who love God. That is not the case. In order to love God, you must love truth. Let's read verses... Oh yes, let's read verses 1 to the, yeah, verses 1 and 2 and 3 from our, um, I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who, do, who are evil. This was not just a truth that was in the minds of the Ephesian church. It was not simply that there were people who could spout off true things, who could debate well on Facebook, <laughs> people who had proper apologetics and, and understood how the different worldviews work and how different religions operate and could speak well. The truth was so precious to them that they were willing to suffer for it. They endured tribulation for it and they patiently endured and were not weary in it. 
This is a lovely thing, brothers. This is, this is something that we can be encouraged by, that when it is that we feel in our hearts a motivation to defend the faith, when it is that we, in our own work contacts, um, are shamed, are marginalized because of our faith and not want to participate in lewd behavior or speech, that it is worth it. It is not that when we think of the word of God as the objective standard and are motivated by it, that somehow something within, within us is lacking. That should be our motivation. We should be encouraged by the word of God to dismiss these things, to despise these things. This brings us to another point, discerning and testing. The Ephesian church, the church of Ephesus, were so in love with the word of God, so in love with the truth that they could discern a false apostle from a mile away. They could smell the rat as it were. They saw clearly when it was somebody who was not speaking those things or living a lifestyle that was in confirmation or that was conforming to what the biblical standard work was rather. A love of truth produces sharp spiritual senses and enables us to detect false teaching. And how true is that for us within our context? And because we, I think, in reading this and in seeing this, many of the characteristics um, that this church has our church has, to be quite honest. Um, most of us here are characterized by being thinking people. We don't like not understanding why we believe something. We'd like to know what it is and, 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 and why we believe it. So for us, many times when we see people um, caught up in false teaching, um, sadly, sometimes in pride, we are confused by it. Like, that is so obvious. I mean, recently it was trending, an African pastor raising a man from the dead. <laughs> um, Subsequently, he was sued by the undertaker because, <laughs> you know, it was false advertising. He wasn't really dead. But there were some people, as obviously that was on Facebook, in the Barbadian context, that was saying that people who questioned it didn't believe in God and miracles. I saw for myself. And for us, this is something that is so obvious. Like, how, how is it possible for you not to be able to discern this? This, this is, you know, there, there are things that we can see are a little more difficult. The debates within the Christian community that are difficult to understand and discern, whether it be the issue with continuationism or the things that we can understand some legitimate problems, but seeing a man with his eyes open this rise, because man did that, it is difficult. But they were commended because they had this, this discerning. And not just that they are able to discern it, but they had a, a detesting of sin, a detesting of falsehood. And this is something else that within our modern context is often misconstrued or often misunderstood. Hatred is necessary for Christians. You can't love something if you don't hate something else. I hate abortion because I love babies. If, 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 if you don't hate something, you said, I don't hate it, I just love. That, 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 that characterization of a very effeminate God and effeminate Christianity is wrong. We are as Christians to hate things and hate them passionately. And this is not just me saying it. The son of man, if you didn't know who Jesus was, <laughs> said that he too hates it and commended the, the, the Thessalonian the Ephesian church for doing so. It was specifically spoken the, the words of the Nicolotians. Um, historically, it's very difficult to find information about the Nicolotians themselves, but it is thought that they had similar sins um, characterized like the sin of Jezebel or, or Balaam. Basically, sexual morality and idolatry. And within the Ephesian context, well, within the context of the church of Ephesus, a lot of commerce happened in that way as well. If it is isn't one of the church people, they had to 
offer you know food to idols or you have to have sex with some priest kiss or something like that. So um, we don't know specifically all the characteristics of the Nicolaitans, but it is thought that at least these two things characterize them. So within their context, they stood up against it, and they didn't stand up against stand up against it with their words, but they had a, a great hatred in their hearts for it. So again, I just want to emphasize: we as believers need to detest sin. So when it is that we experience uh, a frustration with sinning people? When it is we, we have a frustration with false teaching? When it is that we are just tired and sick of the general anti-Christ, anti-Christian environment around us? We are not just pessimistic, miserable people. Um, if it is that you don't mourn and groan in your body because of the sin around you, something is wrong. You need to hate sin. You need to hate sinfulness. You need to hate those things that are opposed to God and His truth. And this is all good news for us because I think when we hear this, we check off the boxes. We love truth. We love theology. We love the big words and lapsarianism and this and that. We love the philosophies and isms and schisms. Uh, we get real cool on Facebook when somebody says something incorrect. <laughs> we, 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 type, we um, can articulate quite well a, a proper apologetic for whatever issue they may be. Um, yet, this is not enough. The, 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 the sum of love is not the, the sum of loving truth. I mean, they're not miss the forest with trees. Loving truth and not loving the truth, the way and the light, is a problem. If it is that we are not burning in our hearts with a passion and a love for a person, and simply for propositional realities, it is a problem, it is an issue. And we love propositional truth, we understand that God communicates in such, we understand that God has given the ability to understand revelation, to receive revelation, and we must love it. But it can't end there. So there's something more, there's a further aspect of love, a further necessary aspect of love. So this is a warning for the loveless. We understand that, obviously, whatever lack was had in their love um, meant that the things that they were currently doing didn't meet that criteria. There are different opinions on what exactly that was. Um, some people believe that it was a, a, love, a lack of love for God. Some people believe it was a lack of love for neighbor in action. So, some of the commentaries, some of the, the, the theologians believe that it was a lack of not caring for people around them that became a cold-hearted people who loved truth but were kind of distant from the culture around them and a lack of evangelism and other things. Um, I will make a different assertion, not because of my own opinions, but other, <laughs> because of other theologians and, and from my own reading. And then I'm going to try to bolster that assertion with a few arguments for such. I think the heart of the matter was that their heart was the matter. And that was a quote from a, a musician named Tim DeBreno, for those who know the church, from my understanding and from seeing what the scripture spoke of, um, experienced a lack of love for God, a primary love and affection and a burning for God. Um, when we think about it being said that it was the first love that was abandoned, from my understanding, um, our first obligation is not the words towards our brother. It is important, it is necessary, but it's not the first. Another aspect for me in, in looking at this is also the fact that they would have done works that were commended. And we understand that obviously God does not commend things as was aforementioned without it coming from some aspect of love. So 
the obedience that they have was commended. So to say that they simply weren't doing good works or loving works, I think would also be inaccurate. There seems to be more a rebuke of some a sin of omission, something lacking in them, as opposed from commission, something that they, they did or, or, or you understand know, you know what I'm saying? So that, that, that is true. And then if you're not convinced by Kamara's opinion, um, there's a theologian by the name of Derek Thomas who says it this way probably both are in view that is both views a lack of love for God will inevitably or invariably uh, produce or be accompanied by a lack of love for one another so there is a low affection experience within the, the, the church of Ephesus there is a lack of a heartfelt communion that they once had known there is something that happened within the space of the knowledge that they would have first gained in the gospel and their current maturity of understanding knowledge um, that missed out on that passion, that that affection that was obviously something that they would have experienced being that they were being refused for having abandoned it. So again, we understand that works are fundamental, knowledge is fundamental, but there is a deeper necessary thing uh, a desire and a love and a passion for God and I'm going to stop here for a few minutes we all are not ignorant to what it means to love passionately there's some men, some women I guess too but men are normally characterized within the meat and other aspects of being known no, I really dance on a man, I ain't that affectionate a foolishness you, in front of your football game or your basketball game or something you just get all hype and flustered and and you, you know what it means to feel passion. And even for us um, who are courting and we've got a lot of quarters in the in place and the reds and so on, we know what it is like to see the, the, the eye of the woman or the eye of the man or the touch, the first touch of the hand. Even those small things that make the heart begin to beep a little bit, forget the hug, and it begin to jump faint. We all know what it is like to experience a burning in our hearts for someone. And I would hope that as Christians having been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and being brought to faith through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would have had an experience like that in our faith at some point in time. We often speak about the honeymoon period of salvation where you can do nothing but pray and read the Bible. For myself, I remember, um, although obviously they had a lot of wrong things that might understand the spirituality back then, but one of the things I don't regret is that I really love the Bible. If I read the Bible and I made a mistake and I saw the, the chapter that was coming, I had to read it. Unless I feel something is wrong. So I, I only ended when the chapter ended and it ended on that page, unless I was up on the Bible. So after they ever had two chapters in one page, I had to have finish. They had a big to You laughing, but they had me in a dizzy. They had a, a lot of things to get done because of that. But the point is that we all know what it is like for our hearts to burn with a, a red hot passion for God, a person. And we made the distinction between communion and unity with Christ. And I think the pastor made this distinction many times, but I'll just reiterate. We're not saying here that as believers you can use unity with Christ. That is an objective reality that is given to us through justification. We're united with Christ, full stop. But the communion with Christ, that's what you mean. We can be further away from or closer to God. It is possible. We're not in a, 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 some stagnant state where we're in the same position all the time when it comes to the communion with God. There are things that we do in our lives that cause us to be further away from God. That is why He commands us to draw near to Him so He can draw near to us. There is a sense in which the passion and the love and communion, the, the, the relational aspect of, of, of Christianity 
is lacking in our lives. And we need not forget this. We need not ignore it. Because this is a serious matter. This is a, a few scriptures, a few poems, a few words to express the type of love that I think we all have experienced. I'm just going to go through a few of them. Arise, my love, my, beauty, my beautiful one, and come away. Oh, my dove, in the clash of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Another one, on my bed by night I sought him, whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets, and in the squares. I will seek him, whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about the city. Have you seen him, whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them, when I found him, whom my soul loves. I held him, and would not let him go, until I had brought him into my mother's house. And into the chamber of her who conceived me. Another one. Turn away your eyes from me. For they overwhelm me. Set me as a seal upon your heart. As a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it out. If a man offered for all, for love all his wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. That's basically saying that you could give everything. You could give me the whole world, but you will not get this love. The whole you will be despised. I would ignore you because of the burning passion that I have. You can let me give up that love, that loved one. That, that love that I, I burn for this particular person is worth more than the world. We understand the difference between a consuming love and a lackluster love. We can't ignore it in our own lives. We can't be content to simply be people who know about God. We need to be people who want to know God Himself. People who seek to be away with the Lord alone. People who the sweet silence of 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 just sitting alone and, and thinking and meditating upon the glories of Jesus Christ. We need to be people who are characterized by this. Which brings us to the remedy. I want to have a sharp quote from Derek Thomas again. We're looking at the remedy for, lovely, for, for the loveless. Um, this letter is a warning to those who can detect false doctrine a mile away, but whose hearts do not beat in tune with the love of God shown in the gospel. The danger is formalism. The cure is to repent. Turning away from sin and turning towards God in the direction to which Christ calls his church. We learn the joy of love to God and to one another as the royal law is seen in James 2a and the greatest fruit of the Spirit in our hearts. Referring to first Corinthians. End quote. Now the question may be asked, with this imperative upon us to try to love God and to serve affection, so is this possible? How do we get it done? Often we give, tell people to do things, not necessarily how to get them done. So I'm going to attempt to give us all, including myself, some instructions on this. How do we facilitate a growing affection for God? First of all, we need to cut off anything and everything that dampens our love for God and spiritual things. And this is this is something that 
I wish I took more seriously and we all took more seriously. We do not like to cut off and pluck up things. We love to skirt around things because in our minds many things are permissible but are not profitable. If we are going to grow in maturity as believers, and this is one of the qualifications for, for men who want to be elders, but I think this should characterize any believer who wants to grow in sanctification. This characterizes any believer who wants to grow in maturity. There are things in the world that we simply cannot partake in. Not because the argument is they're sinful in and of themselves, but they do not facilitate us growing in love with God. They hold our hearts into the temporal, to the things that do not benefit us to spiritual maturity. And if it is that we want a burning, lasting affection for God, we need to give them up. The most obvious of which is sin. <laughs> so if it is that there are things within our lives that facilitate us sinning, facilitate us actively committing and breaking the commands of God, it is obvious that we need to stop doing it. Stop going to that place, stop watching that thing, stop listening to it. Stop tasting it, whatever it is, we need to stop doing it. And this is not, and, and this is a, a real threat. We would have heard a couple of weeks ago, um, Pastor Peter Winsgar speaking about the different types of soil and the rocky one, the one that was plucked up from the sideways, the one that was um, just fast, but when it endured persecution, it left, the one that was choked with the world because of riches and money and, and, and the distractions of the world, these are legitimate concerns to have because none of us, none of us are above them. Now, I'm going to get encouraging in a moment, so don't feel like I can die. But the, point, <laughs> but the point is that we really, honestly, sincerely need to take this particular point seriously. Cutting off and plucking out for the sake of our souls, for the sake of our souls, not, not for just a better life, a more comfortable life. Don't cheat my wife because I get stressed. No. You will go to hell. It is, this, is, this is not a, a, a thing that simply supposed to be about the temporal and, and storing your finances properly so you can you know, live better. This is, this is about your soul and about your communion with the, the everlasting God who is not to be trifled with. So that's one. We need to cut off and pluck out. And secondly, we have the ordinary means of grace to facilitate a growing affection for God. Simple. Prayer, the word, and fellowship. We need to be jealous for the time alone with God. We need to covet time for prayer and worship. If it is as believers, we do not deliberately set time apart, apart from our work, apart from even our families, to be alone with God in prayer and worship. We are not going to have the type of affections that is being described here. That the, the, the Ephesians are being rebuked for not having. It will not happen. It cannot happen. You cannot know God if you do not imbibe his word. If you do not pray and spend time alone with him. You need to do it. And so often it is a... I can speak for myself as well. But we can walk with a sense of consistency for time. Now we, we're going well. Then we get complacent because I mean, you know, I have been reading and praying, and I just I feel the spirit, so I might as well binge on two two seasons of Netflix on you know, Netflix or something. Because I mean, I, you know, I, I was praying for the whole week. It's, it's, it's about time that I do a little leisure. No, I'm not making this a rule for you, but I'm talking to come on. I should cut it off. 
I should put it on. So we need to, to spend the time alone in prayer, in word and fellowship. We need to make ourselves available to be engaged by our brothers and sisters in Christ. And to engage them. This is not a one man thing. When we struggle with sin, we want to hide away from people. Even our own spouses sometimes. We don't want to confess our sins to people. We don't want to confess our struggles to people because it is shameful. We are embarrassed because of whatever the particular sin is. Whatever the particular insecurity is. We don't want to confess it. don't want to bring it up. Some of us are just antisocial people who really don't want to deal with people. But that's another thing we need to be dealt with. You, you need... No. <laughs> we, I said that in jest or something. But seriously, we, we need to be available for people to love on us and to love people. This facilitates us as we see the glory of Christ in our brothers and sisters in Christ to love Him more. When we see Christ in people, when we see people going from faith to faith, from glory to glory, that encourages us. That helps the, the flame in our own hearts to be burning more. There, there is. I am no. I am not encouraged any. There, there is a time when I'm more encouraged than any other time. Um, apart from being at church, it's per meeting. When the guys come together and confess sin and get rebuked and get hit with rocks and are hugged as well in his affection, hugged and cared for and encouraged. There's no time where I feel more encouraged and, and more set right to be in communion with God. You need to make yourself available to engage your brothers and sisters in Christ who cannot do it on their own. Expose your sin, get a point to laugh at or rebuke or loved up on. <laughs> but you need to do what it takes to, to to get closer to God. And if that means the awkward conversations that need to be had, particularly when relationships are now being formed, have those conversations. Some of us have the, the privilege of having relationships that we've been here for years, but we as a new church, although we've been here for how long have we been over here now? We're going two years. Two years September. Um, so a year and some. Um, we need to foster those relationships. We need to be deliberate about seeing people going out with those who we don't often go out with. So I'm speaking to us, and that's making a general sermon for anybody, don't me. <laughs> We need to make time for this. Because unless we do so, the, the type of love that we're supposed to have, the type of affection we're supposed to burn with the fire for the Lord, will not be there. So I want to end off with this. We have the instructions and hope that there was relative clarity on how to work on growing affection, cutting off sin, Recognizing that it's a, it's, a, it's a fight for the lives and it's not. The lives is not a play around thing. Being deliberate about spending time in His Word, imbibing the Scripture, and having your mind and your heart renewed by it, so that those things that God loves you begin to love more. So when you see what does conform to God's Word in the world, you are grateful and thankful. To worship on a Sunday morning and evening with your brothers and sisters in Christ in unison to the praise of the glory of God's grace and just spending time in fellowship, informal talking laughing I want to encourage us that although we have the ordinary means of grace, we do have something even greater to encourage us the fact that we are loved by God they were instructed to do three things to remember, to repent, and to do. Remember what? Remember the
the Son of Man who was in the midst of the lampstands. Remember the Savior that was spoken of earlier in chapters 1 who would have died for them. We need to, to always have a gospel-centered life, not just in respect to how we live our lives in action, but our thought lives. Now, obviously, we know that we're connected. Our hearts, our minds, and our actions are connected, but sometimes there's a little cognitive dissonance, and sometimes there's a disconnect in the way that we think and the way that we act. We need to recognize that the gospel is necessary for the most mature believer. We need to meditate and remember why we are saved and who we are saved by, who we, who we are, whose we are. So the gospel of Jesus Christ, the glory of our Savior and the love that has been showered upon us. The Bible says that we love him because he first loved us. So if it is that we do not meditate upon that which express God's love more than anything else, which is the cross, it will be very difficult for us to raise affections towards God. We need to reflect upon the gospel daily. We need to remember it and to imbibe it and to find joy in it because that is a great thing. It's a lovely thing to be, to be reminded of the fact that although I'm a nasty, vile sinner, the Son of God chose voluntarily to die on the cross in my place. What love is this? We need to be encouraged by that. We need to smile and to glory and to, to shout, bless God and hallelujah and to wave our hands and dance a little bit. We need to be moved by it. And finally, we need to be encouraged, or we should be encouraged, by the fact that the victory is already won, as I would have said before. This was written to believers as a letter of, of encouragement to be faithful because the victory is won. The truth-loving and the pains and agonies that come with truth-loving, like having to contend with false teaching, Having to be frustrated by all those things within the world, no conform to the word of God, the image of God, the truth of God. Being frustrated for our own sin and our lack of holiness. We're encouraged by the fact that God has won victory over all these things in our behalf. This should encourage us to want to love Him more. Because even although, and I do not want to stop us from recognizing the imperatives that we have in, in getting this done. But ultimately, and thankfully, we have a hope in a Savior who is already victorious. We do not need to pull ourselves up by straps. It is not that Kamara needs to will itself to, to, to be perfect. God says he will finish the work he's begun in me, and he will do so for you. We need to be so joyous because of this. I am begging us, I'm begging myself, not to simply be a church or people characterized by love and truth and knowledge and understanding who greatly and lovingly and articulately speak truth and correct and rebuke and instruct and love and encourage. But people who sincerely know what it's like to be so caught up in the word that they end up a few hours later than they probably should be because they're not working in the morning, praying or reading the scriptures. This should be something that is real to us. This is not something for the emotional people. You get what I'm saying? So often there is a, 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 a distinction or a juxtaposition between the intellectual types and the emotional types. 
And for us, when we lean more on the intellectual type spectrum, uh, often try to avoid any expression of emotion because we don't want to be caught up in rampant emotionalism, which we understand is folly. But we dare not lose the tree, lose the forest, lose the tree for the forest, as they say, right? Forest with trees. And I don't say trees, but it's understand the forest. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. But you get the point. We need to honestly desire to feel something. And I know we, um, I think a lot of us will be aware of some of the definitions of love, which I agree with as well that love is act of the will, accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of this object. I agree with that, that is true. We cannot say we love somebody and slap them in the face and come to the summer. I love you. But, but, but. That, that is not love. But if it is that we simply feel as if you check off a couple of things on the checklist, I read the Bible, I have a good, sound theology, I just content with the faith. That is, suffer the foolishness of our workplace and in my home setting for the sake of the gospel. I started. You are in trouble. If you don't know what it's like to be caught up and raptured by the love and affection and burning feeling for God, a person, that is the problem. And don't be mistaken by it. Be encouraged again <laughs> that we have this hope in Christ. We have this open place, guys. Um, I know we got on a little ball again. Again, I just said, I love you, rabbit hole again. But smile and be encouraged because we, we have a Savior who says that we finish your work in us. I love you guys and I hope that we take the instructions to, to be deliberate about prayer, be deliberate about worship, be deliberate about fellowship, and be deliberate about cutting off those things that don't profit us loving God more. I love you guys and God bless you.